Our partner for this episode is Carl Treen and Food Forest Card Game. With a deck of Food Forest cards, you put yourself in the center of a web of relationships, connecting plants, insects, animals, and people. With these cards, you will play fun, challenging games based on these relationships, matching the inputs on one card with the outputs of another to create beneficial connections. For example, you can take one card that produces nitrogen, such as clover, and connect it to a nitrogen consumer, like blackberries. One card that needs a trellis, for example grapes, with another card that acts as one, like linden. By matching these relationships, players discover how to use the complex web of nature to their advantage, both in the game and in the garden. Food forest cards are also responsibly sourced, and every deck sold goes toward planting multiple trees. We not only offset our impact, but honestly improve the environment. Find out more and order your deck of cards today at foodforestcardgame.com. Though David and I work with partners like Carl and Food Forest Card Game, who we believe in and who believe in the podcast, this program remains listener-supported. We couldn't keep doing this if it wasn't for you. Please consider including the show in your end-of-year giving. Online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, on the right-hand side of the website at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or by mail, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is The Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is the renowned animal behaviorist Fred Provenza, who joins me to talk about how we can reconnect with the foods that feed our bodies and reclaim our nutritional wisdom. Drawing on decades of research with animals, Upon retirement from Utah State University, Fred turned his lens towards human beings to pull together the best studies and his own personal journey to provide a way we can begin to eat well for ourselves by outlining where we've gone wrong and what we can do to make a positive change. We start with Fred sharing his background and then proceed to talk about the three characteristics of and influences on nutritional wisdom. I'll go way back here, but I'll try not to make it too long-winded. You know, I come from a little town in the central part of Colorado called Salida, was raised there. It's in the heart, what they like to call the heart of the Rockies. And for me, being outdoors, plants, animals, being in nature was what uh, I loved that, loved everything about that. Um, When I went to college, I went to Colorado State University and majored in wildlife biology and just absolutely loved learning about soils, plants, all the wild animals. It was just uh, one beautiful kind of subject after another, actually. But I was also working on a ranch at that same time, and uh, I ended up spending seven years on that ranch. And that combination of learning about wildlife biology and then being on a ranch and Seeing the conflicts actually between those in in wildlife biology, if it wasn't native and natural, you know, it it was it was looked down on really, and uh, and I can understand why those folks felt that domestic animals and humans had really degraded landscapes. So anyway, it was that combination that really perked my interest. I loved working on the ranch, working with plants and animals every day. I loved learning about all that stuff in school. And so that really set me up with a understand behavior. You know, well, why, why do animals do what they do? Why do they go where they go? Why do they eat the foods they eat? And so forth. Just a, a total fascination in that. So I went back to graduate school and uh, worked on a master's and a PhD degree that really helped me to move into work in that area, looking at um, at trying to understand food and habitat selection of animals. Now, at the time I entered into to the work that, that I was doing, the disciplines of range science, wildlife science, ecology, I think were very descriptive in nature. You know, they focused on what do animals do? Where do they go? What do they do? I think what we really contributed was trying to understand why do they do that? What underlies that from a behavioral standpoint? And what were you learning through those processes at that time doing that research on the land? As I recall from your book, you were doing a lot following goats on pasture and seeing what they would and wouldn't eat in that environment? Yes, that's exactly. And that further perked my interest. Two things with the goats I think were really striking. We were 
We were working in southern Utah on the idea, which was a new idea 50 years ago, was to use domestic animals as biological tools to manipulate landscapes to enhance their value. In our case, we were trying to improve winter range for mule deer, bighorn sheep, and for cattle. And the idea was that if we use these goats to prune this shrub during the winter time, that would stimulate new twig growth during the spring and summer. And we knew from work that some other folks had done that those new twigs would be higher in energy and protein and richer in minerals. So it looked like a really great project. The problem was the goats didn't want to touch the new growth. That was the amazing, one of the amazing things. And uh, it reinforced for people who had the belief, which was most people back in those days, that domestic animals don't have nutritional wisdom. Wild animals, people felt probably still do, but domestic animals, cattle, sheep, and goats, and poultry and all the rest had lost that as a result of the process of domestication. And I remember telling a toxicologist friend of mine, a, a distinguished professor, that the goats wouldn't eat the new growth. And he looked at me and he said, well, I guess that just goes to prove that animals don't have nutritional wisdom, doesn't it? I didn't believe that, but I didn't have any way to dispute what he was saying at that time. Turns out I spent a career disputing those kind of ideas, but at the time I didn't know what to say. Well, turns out the goats were smarter than we were. The new twigs were loaded with a, with a particular compound, a condensed tannin, that was a very strong feeding deterrent. The bark of blackbrush is 70% condensed tannin. And if they ate that tannin, it had adverse effects on them. So what we were learning then is that about plant defenses, about how plants protect themselves from being overutilized by animals. And we were learning from the animals that they pick up on these signals. And so even though that new growth was more nutritious, it was also way higher in these secondary compounds like the condensed tannins. And that fit with this whole discipline of chemical ecology, plant chemical ecology that was just emerging in those days. It was just coming out. And so that allowed me to hook up with a lot of folks, ecologists working on chemical ecology and showing that from insects through to large mammals, plants and animals are interacting and these chemicals that plants produce are mediating those responses. That's a little bit long-winded, Scott, but you know, that really perked my interest in what's going on. Another thing that happened down there was we had six pastures that we had set up and we had goats on each of those pastures. Well, in one of those pastures, the goats started eating wood rat houses. Wood rats are ubiquitous down in that part of the country. They build these big, big houses at the base of juniper trees. The outsides of the houses are covered with bark. Well, blackbrush isn't great nutritionally, but wood rat houses look even worse. You know, so why are the goats eating these wood rat houses? Well, started to watch really carefully what they were doing, and the wood rat houses have different chambers in them, different rooms, and one of the rooms is the bathroom basically, and that was the room that interested the goats. Why it was soaked in urine. And that urine became a non-protein nitrogen source that really helped boost their nutrition. So those kind of observations, following animals around, not only on the ranch, the domestic animals and wild animals that, that were, you know, in central Colorado, but then on this master's and PhD program, working with these goats really, really perked my interest and just instilled in me a belief that animals know, they know what their bodies need, and they can learn how to get that. But then also it made me think, you know, okay, here's six groups of goats down here on these blackbrush pastures. Only one group of goats figures out to eat these wood rat houses. And after three months, they're faring much better nutritionally than the other five groups of goats. So why didn't the other five groups figure it out? All these kind of things became questions that really intrigued me. And uh, when I got on the faculty, I spent the next 35, 40 years doing research to try to understand better 
what is nutritional wisdom? How does nutritional wisdom work? And then when it came to writing nourishment, getting into the literature on human beings and saying, well, you know, what do we know about humans that we learned about relative to sheep and goats and cattle? And what were you learning from that? Because that's the part that really fascinates me is moving from all these years of research and experience with domesticated animals, those creatures that human beings raise for our use, to then turn that lens to the eating habits and the food cultures of the human animal. And I'm just wondering, where was that switch for you? And what did you find through that exploration that led you to write Nourishment? What happened, Scott? I retired in 2009, and my wife and I moved, as I point out in the beginning throughout the book, to what I refer to as the backwoods of Colorado. And we really were. We were in a beautiful setting, 9,500 feet elevation, a transition between the aspen and conifer forest and this huge parkland of South Park. And we were 12 miles in on graveled road. So we were, we were up there alone and just be able to sit back and reflect on the mystery, the wonder, the beauty of this planet. And then to think about, and to have time to think about, well, you know, we studied all these things on domestic animals. If I get into the literature on human beings, into the scientific literature, and really try to study that, what will I find relative to the kinds of things that we found were so important? Let me take a little bit of time and just explain what to me is the essence of nutritional wisdom, whether it's a domestic animal or a wild animal or a human being, and then we can, we can move from there. There are three facets, I think, that are really critical for nutritional wisdom to work. One of those is what I refer to and have in the book and have for many years as flavor feedback relationships. And that was one of the most amazing things to me when we started to study that and learn how that works it just blew my mind because here's the the idea when we eat food we like we think we like it because and we do because it either tastes because it tastes good we don't like it because it tastes bad and it it's all through that lens of the flavor of the food what we're not aware of is that feedback from cells and organ systems including the microbiome is really what's causing our changes in liking for the flavor of the food. And that was something that we were able to study for many, many years and to, to do the kind of experiments that one would need to do to really show that feedback is what's playing a fundamentally important role in our liking. And that feedback and liking are a function of, of need, and those needs are uh, at the cellular level, including the microbiome. So that was one facet of what we studied over the years. And we were able to show not only for nutritional needs, energy, protein, minerals, vitamins, but also this whole range of these secondary compounds or phytochemicals, plant chemicals. We were able to show how important they are in mediating these flavor feedback relationships. And it's not just a negative kind of input. For instance, I mentioned the goats avoided the new twigs of blackbrush because it's so high in condensed tannins. Well, any compound at too high amounts, including nutrients, we showed is aversive to animals. It decreases their liking for the flavor of the food. Well, these secondary compounds or these phytochemicals, as I refer to them in the book, at moderate amounts, they have huge health benefits and animals actually really like those. So we were exploring these favorite flavor feedback relationships and showing that nutrients and these secondary compounds in plants are hugely influencing liking for flavor in cattle, sheep, and goats. And you point to some studies and other information in the book that reflect the same thing in human beings, but somewhere along the lines, it seems like that wisdom, being able to listen to our bodies and the food traditions and cultures of different communities that ate locally and seasonally have kind of been broken. Yes, yes, absolutely. The flavor feedback relationships still exist in human beings. There's no question about that, but they've been hijacked. 
through the ways that the food industry has created processed kinds of foods. If you think about how that's done, and I talk about feedback traps and talk about how to poison a rat, a cow, or a human being, and one of the keys is that we learned over time, and it's true for humans as well, is that all animals are cautious of unfamiliar foods and flavors. When you've never had something before and it's really different from what you've eaten, you're cautious of that. So how do you get around that? One of the ways the food industry does is to create artificial flavors that mimic real flavors, flavors in real kinds of foods, whether it's fruit flavors or spices or whatever it is. And then from a feedback standpoint, what's critical is to follow that flavor with a blast of energy. And the food industry has really learned well how that comb- how to do that combination. And then that hijacks the system, basically. And it starts in the womb, basically. The, that's another facet of nutritional wisdom. There are three facets. There's the flavor feedback relationships that I've been talking about. There's these learning experiences in utero and early in life that are really critical. And, uh, you know, the fetal taste system is fully functional during the last trimester of gestation. So the foods that mother is eating, the flavors of those foods are getting into the amniotic fluid. And the the young creature is already learning about the foods that mother eats. Then after birth, those same flavors are getting into mother's milk. And if mother is breastfeeding, those become additional cues as to what what food is. And then as the young creature begins to feed on its own, what mom's eating, what mom's avoiding, those become really important cues. So mother is playing, mother and culture are playing huge roles then in this process of nutritional wisdom. Now, if the mother is eating wholesome foods, that sets the young offspring up for eating those kinds of foods. But if the mother is is eating a diet that's very high in processed foods, um, you know, now kids are being born born with a host of predispositions toward illnesses simply as a result of, of the poor kind of dietary choices that the mother is making for highly processed foods. And so we have a bit of the nature and nurture side of this kind of loss of our nutritional wisdom because of the things that we're exposed to even before birth because of our mother's choices and then because of the traditions that we're born into and the culture that we're a part of, the foods that we have access to early on predispose us to eating in a particular way that can make it difficult to kind of reclaim our place and relationship with nutritious foods. Absolutely. Very nicely said. That's That nails the whole thing. That's it in a nutshell. And so the cultural part becomes, you know, you're right, on the nature and nurture. So we could say that the flavor feedback is is built into the organism. Those kind of relationships are part of the way the body is made. That would be a, a nature part. But the nurture part then is the these experiences that begin in utero and early in life. And they're, just, they're fundamentally important because they're not only influencing what and what not the uh, young creature, I say creature, <laughs> referring across the board, whether it's domestic livestock or wild animals or, or humans, what the young creature will, will prefer to, to eat. And we've alluded to this, and we don't need to go into great detail, but one of the most fascinating things to me is that those experiences in utero and early in life influence the development of organ systems from the, the way the gut develops to the way the kidneys develop to um, all of these organ systems are being influenced as a result of these experiences. One example, very, very quickly, from some, some of the work that uh, was done in Australia, they were showing that if sheep are raised on this shrub called saltbrush, which is a native plant there, it's high in, high in sodium, that the development of their kidneys and the function of those kidneys is different from sheep whose mothers ate grass pastures during pregnancy. And that's simply enabling those sheep that were raised on saltbrush to better utilize saltbrush. And we showed that for different kind of organ systems in the work we did over the years as well. Well, those same kind of things are being shown for human beings as well. 
And this whole field, this emerging huge field of epigenetics, absolutely supports all of these kind of ideas. Very briefly, you know, we have this very, very stable genome that exists in an incredibly unstable, ever-changing environment. Well, how does that work? The way that works is that genes are being expressed as a function of these experiences in utero and early in life. And so the development of organ systems is a function then of what, what we get exposed to really starting at the earliest stages of our coming to this planet. And so even though we have this fairly stable genome, what's happening through the generations is as certain genes get turned on and turned off through these in utero experiences, through our parents' experiences, that we're changing the ways that we have the relationships to our environment when it comes to food and other experiences? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're changing our relationship with the environment. That's Again, very well said, Scott. That's uh, that's it. We're changing our relationship with the environment. And a third facet, la- la- I'll just throw this in. So we've talked about two facets of what I consider to be the, the core of nutritional wisdom. One is flavor feedback relationships. The other are these uh, the culture, the social cultural part of things. The third is the, the availability of alternatives. What are the alternatives that are available to us in the environment? From the standpoint of domestic and wild animals, biodiversity becomes hugely, hugely, hugely important. It's not just a buzzword. It's what, it's what further enables this. If there's no choices, it doesn't matter what culture you have or what flavor feedback is. You're basically in a box. The more choices there are, the better able individuals are to meet their needs for all, not only energy and protein and minerals and vitamins, but all this host of secondary compounds that are so enabling health as well. So biodiversity becomes really important from the standpoint of domestic and wild animals. And then you can think, well, what's the availability of alternatives for human beings? And uh, we know that many of those options of, that are available in the supermarket are highly processed foods that are are not going to be so healthful really when eaten in excess, when eaten in huge excess. The other thing, though, that strikes me is that the ways that we grow foods, um, and this comes right out of the ecological literature, you know, when you fertilize and you add water and those kind of things, you typically, not always, but you typically enhance growth at the expense of nutrient density, of phytochemical richness, as I like to say in the book. So the ways that we grow plants, the varieties that we selected for, we've really selected against these secondary compounds and for for sweetness. And so we've changed the balance. And I think anyone who has the experience of going out and foraging for themselves, for instance, where I live here in Montana now, during the late summer and early fall on a hike, you can pick 10 different kinds of wild berries. And those berries have a sweetness to them, that's for sure, but they have a phytochemical punch. You know you've eaten something. It's rich, rich, rich in flavor. And I think we've lost a lot of that through the the varieties that we've selected for. Quantity has trumped phytochemical richness and quality, and that's been well documented in the literature, uh, in scientific reviews here in the United States and in the UK both. So those are the three three elements that I think are so key. And if you if you break any one of those links, then you're not going to get to what I would call a really rich kind of uh, nutritional wisdom and enabling that. Reading your book and in this conversation, it leads me to think about so many of the different elements of our human society and our food system and the way that all of these things come together. And the way that one of the things that really surprised me when I was reading your book, one of the quick little facts was that we didn't start fortifying food until about 80 years ago. That that's when the first vitamins and minerals were synthesized that we could add to food. And that how our food system has changed over those years because of how much we can change what it is that we're eating so that it appears to meet these dietary requirements. And yet at the same time, the way that, as you say there about nutritional density, I've had several guests on the show where we've talked about nutritional density and the way that we can remineralize soils to grow nutrient-dense foods. But I think about anybody who's ever raised a tomato, particularly like an an heirloom variety, 
and compare that to what they might get at the supermarket, something that is uniform and firm and will deliver almost the same thing every time. But you go out there to your garden, you have this, you know, kind of small, perhaps ugly kind of (laughs) fruit. But then when you harvest it needed, it is just so wonderfully flavorful and tasty. And then about how we have all of these traditions from all over the world that eat very, very differently. And when we look at these different traditions between, you know, types of fermentation and what that unlocks based on what was available, but as we've commodified food more and more and more, rather than having hundreds of foods or even thousands of foods that people would eat around the world from different leafy greens to uh, vegetables or berries or nuts or fruits, that we're now down to, I don't remember the exact number, but something like 14 foods provide like 90% of human calories now? That's right. Uh, Rather than having this tremendous biodiversity in our diets, we've really reduced that. Another thing that I think is so related to what we're talking about, Scott, and I saw this throughout my career, the emphasis was always with domestic animals on how do you increase intake? How do you get them to eat more food with the idea that you have higher growth rates and, you know, quicker gains and those kind of those kind of things? I think that's the same idea really from the food industry standpoint. How do you increase intake, increase intake, increase intake? Well, you do that and it leads to obesity and diet-related diseases. What we really ought to be thinking is how do you combine really biochemically rich kind of foods into meals that decrease intake because they satisfy. You're not full, you're satisfied, and you're satisfied on small amounts because they're really, those combinations of foods are fundamentally meeting needs at a cellular level. And I I think of that all the time anymore of how, and I think of some of the cuisines, and uh, my wife likes to explore different different kinds of cuisines and stuff. And uh, when you have meals that really are rich biochemically, you're satisfied without eating a lot of a lot of food. Uh, it just strikes me that. And of course, you know, there's, there's a part in the book that really gets into our beliefs. I find that so interesting. And that's a difference compared to, I, I don't know what goats and sheep and cows believe. I don't doubt they have that, but I don't but in humans, their whole belief system. So I'm saying, you know, I think if I eat this this biochemically rich meal, I'm very satisfied and I eat less of that. But uh, our belief systems are huge in everything related to food and everything related to life. And so the book gets into that, as you know, how powerful that is in, in everything that happens with us. Well, and when it comes to those kinds of things, I grew up with a family that was familiar with poverty. Not that I grew up in those conditions, but you know, one generation previously, my grandparents came from the Depression era. My parents were both baby boomers from people who knew those kinds of things. So I grew up on what many people would think of as like poverty foods. And yet at the same time, so many of those combinations of things that we were eating were rich in essential fats. They were these, what would be considered offcuts of meat that were a little bit fattier that you would cook longer. You were combining those with whole grains and a lot of vegetables to fill it out because it was cheaper to cook that way. And then it was interesting talking to my mother because my mother was a restaurant manager for many years and went through food service training. And she talked about how, and I remember going through this as a child, we used to cook a lot at home until I was, I don't know, maybe 10 years old, the late 80s, early 90s when convenience foods became even easier to introduce into our diets because they became cheaper than buying whole foods in many cases. And they were quicker. And I remember when for a long time, things like fast foods were these traditions that, you know, we might go out to eat once a month because it was so much more expensive at the time to eat out as opposed to cooking at home. And then sometime again, around that same time, these other foods became really inexpensive compared to eating at home. And they kind of took the forefront and wiped out a lot of these home-cooked traditions. And a lot of what we were eating was no longer rich and diverse, but kind of homogenized. Yes, you were very fortunate in that sense, weren't you, of, of the time that you grew up. And I, I was as well. I am a baby boomer. And uh, 
you know, the same experiences that you described are what happened with my family. We didn't have a lot of money. Mom cooked everything at home. And I just think back, you know, that was just, it's time and timing is so critical and everything, huh? <laughs> a lot of what set you up, I mean, my wife and I have always grown gardens. We've always raised our own meat and stuff. And But a lot of that comes from just and in a lot of ways, I don't take credit for it. It's just the, the time we grew up. We grew up with parents that did that. When I was on the ranch, we did all of that kind of stuff. And uh, my mother wasn't eating a lot of processed foods when, when I was in the womb and so forth. And so I can't really take credit for that, but I benefited from that. Do you know what I mean? And then I see kids nowadays, a lot of them, you know, well... And I hear people criticize. So I, I know kids that are very, very, very heavy, you know, very, very heavy. And their kids are heavy. And, and you hear people criticize that. And, you know, there are linkages in time and space that, that influence these kind of outcomes. And that's where you get into the in utero, early life, epigenetic kinds of things. And the degree to which we can place, quote, blame for anything becomes uh, really, really not so good, huh? That we start to realize everything is linked in time and space. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying to think about how to reverse some of these patterns that, at least to me, seem to be be not good in terms of of a culture. And that's where I think this food movement and what's happening there is so important. Couldn't we get a culture that becomes more linked with the landscapes and more linked with how fundamentally important? for the health of everything on this planet, it is to, to care for the landscapes that we have. I, I was so steeped in that, in the wildlife biology tradition that I, uh, when I went to Colorado State University, one of the first things they'd have you read back in those days was a Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold, of course. That was kind of the Bible. And but his pleas for that we're, you know, we're community, we're, we're community with these landscapes and I don't believe that we got there to what, uh, even close to what he was was arguing in those days for uh, a really healthful, respective relationship and understanding our dependence, our absolute dependence on the health of landscapes for the health of our species, as well as, of course, all the species of the planet. He wrote so eloquently about that. And uh, his land ethic, I... I I think if he thought it was bad back in the 40s when he was writing that, I think he'd be flipping in his grave now. But, you know, whatever. What you spoke to there about all of these different pressures and the way that decisions that are made before we were born influence us and the choices that we make now, the way that the culture around us influences and decides in many ways what we have access to, I think is one of the important things for us to consider moving forward because yes we as individuals can make the choice to make a change and do our best to move toward it but at the same time there is a certain amount of forgiveness that we need to have for ourselves and others in understanding the things that we have no control over and sometimes it's very easy i think to lose that when we don't realize how much of a difference it makes when our grocery store is 5 minutes away but our farmers market is is 15 minutes on the other side of town without traffic and how that can change our ability to go and get those fresh, wholesome foods that are in season versus what our day might be like and going, you know, I can just hit the grocery store on the way home and get something for dinner. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely the case, Scott. I, I sure agree with, with everything you just said in that sense. No question about it. The idea of, of understanding how how interconnected we are and then the empathy for the other one and tolerance and forgiveness uh, um, I'm with you all the way as relates to that and when you talk about how do we reverse these patterns i think mentioning out of leopold i had to read that for graduate school and it was very influential in understanding the way that we can relate ethically to the land and to view it differently than we might through what we're taught day to day through our dominant culture. But in addition to recommending that people read that book, what are some other suggestions that you would have for taking back our relationship with food and our food traditions and starting to change these patterns, knowing that we might not be able to do it completely for ourselves, but we can start to influence our lives and through that future generations? 
You know, I think if a person thinks there's value in the kind of things that we're talking about, one of the things I think is so so good is just to grow grow your own food to the degree that you can. You know, vegetable gardens, growing your own herbs, how satisfying. Medicinal kind of plants, you know, that, that whole area. And as you know, there's a whole chapter in the book about about herbal medicine and, you know, plants as medicines. All that can, I think it gets you hands-on involved, actually working with plants. And then you were mentioning trying to identify varieties, heirloom varieties, or, you know, some of the old varieties that were really, really rich in flavor and phytochemically very, very rich. You know, growing those kind of things and the satisfaction that comes from just hands-on doing that. I you know, we've we've moved a, a long way, in my view, away from an intimate relationship with natural systems. But I believe that's still a part of us. I think that's I think that's still a part of of what's in humans. And I think that's a simple way that that people that individuals most you know I know of people that don't have big garden space, but they just grow some potted tomatoes or whatever and and they get great satisfaction out of growing some a few different you know strawberries and tomatoes and uh, broccoli and and just just growing some plants so i think that's one way that can really uh, really be beneficial i work with a medical doctor here who's very much into the kind of things that we're talking about and he tells me he says you know when when i get a new patient and they come in with a lot of with issues so the first thing we've got to do is get your diet right, because odds are most of your issues, if not all of them, are going to go away once we do that. And he really encourages people to start growing their own gardens and uh, getting hands-on involved with, with the foods that they eat as as part of his, uh, really a fundamental part of medicine. You know, I tell him often, man, I think you're a doctor of the future. This is what, you know, dealing with fundamental issues, not treating symptoms with pills and uh, and procedures and that kind of thing, but trying to get fundamentally back to health and healthy relationships with with environments and and I think that's a that's a simple way to go about doing that and what you speak to there about the role of food in our lives is I have an autoimmune disorder, celiac disease, so i I have to eat a gluten free diet or be sick and it took me many, many years to get that diagnosis, but once I fixed the food issue. So many of my problems went away, and it was only in exploring that condition very, very deeply did I understand that having a diet that doesn't fit your body can have more than just physical symptoms. You know, it can relate to depression, your thought processes, how clear your mind is, and all of these other host of things that I never really connected until I had to explore this because of that kind of Cartesian worldview that our, our mind and our body are separate, that we're reintegrating many of those things now and understanding how much our our gut biology impacts our thought processes, the foods that we eat, how that can impact our health. And it's one of the things that I really liked about your book from my own experiences is how it relates that all of us have a diet that is ideal for us, but it is not necessarily the diet that anyone else would eat, but that it requires reform and work to find what that is. And there are many different people who we can work with in order to find out what might be going on from a scientific perspective so that we can take care of the physical and even the spiritual and psychological to become a healthy and holistic human being as a result of it. And you've backed it up with so much research that makes it so much more evident than I have found in many other people who have argued this worldview before. Yeah, well said again. Got that. I think you, you really summarized a ton of what the book is about. And as you know, very early on in the book, there's a chapter, No Two Alike. And that underlies everything that's said in the book, both from a physical and I, I see this very much from a spiritual standpoint. It's amazing to me how no two creatures ever have been alike on this planet. Just to think about that is, you know, that's, that's incredible to realize. And I explain how that happened, you know, as best people know, why are no two of us ever alike? Or even, 
if we were conceived under exactly the same conditions, how we still wouldn't be the same person because chance is playing a role. But as you know from reading the book, that that whole notion that we are absolutely unique. And then it's true what you say. It seems like there's no free lunch on the planet, uh, although you can slide along as much as you want. But even something like figuring out what foods best work for my body, what spiritual kinds of things best work for my body, and not simply succumbing to what I would say is just kind of the dogma, you know, well, because there's everybody wants to tell us, you know, well, this is the way you should eat. This is the way you should go to church or whatever, whatever it is, you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to demean any of that, but I'm building on that point that you made. And that's so fundamental to this book that really need to go inside, huh? need to go inside. And, and you sounds like you did a wonderful job and a lot of work though, huh? Figuring out what best work. Well, it's, it's amazing. I just reflect back. I'm not a spring chicken now for sure. And, reflect back from both the physical and the spiritual standpoint of of life and uh, and the book really tried to really tried to get into that to explore that from both those standpoints as as it went on and and you very nicely i think very nicely hit on that and summarized what um what i see as really the the most important thing i was trying to say in that book is that we're each unique and and the journey's unique to each of us, huh? and, and to do the work, to figure that out for yourself, huh? and to, it's amazing, and I think of culture a lot, and I, I appreciate that, and, and I'm not trying to, to condemn or be critical, but culture can either really, I think, enable the wisdom, these wisdoms, or it can strangulate it. And oftentimes I, I see it more as a strangulating influence of the dogma and, you know, this is what you should do and that's what you should do and so forth, rather than than helping the individual to explore and figure out, well, who is this Scott or Fred or whatever, you know, this momentary incarnation here and live out of that, huh? live out of that. And in a way that respects all other creatures too, all other people. Why, you know, the other humans, the other all, a love and respect for everything that's on this planet. That uh, I've always felt that. But those years we spent in the backwoods, and I really tried to get that flavor in the book. You know, I trained as a scientist, and scientific writing, you know, you it's boring, right? To I me, mean, it's deliberately <laughs> meant to be boring. You know, and and we try to make it as objective as we can, although I argue in the book, you know, it's probably probably not so easy, actually, as we like to pretend to be objective. But, you know, that that becomes such an interesting part of this this whole deal. And just that time to reflect there in those backwoods about about the mystery, the wonder, the beauty, all that was was amazing time. And so I was trying to get that flavor into the book as as I went, and I enjoyed trying to do that, but I wasn't, you know, I had a friend that read a review of the book, and he sent me a note. He said, I didn't know you could write, and I said, I can't, you know. (laughs) That's pretty much where, not that I'm trying to discourage people from buying the book, but, but it was very fun to get some heart and soul into that book, not just the science, you know? And that's where the autobiographical information that you share that takes us on this journey from your early days of research and then closing with a period of reflection and sharing some very difficult times of your life between the depression and cancer and what you were learning in the classroom of trying to have open dialogues with your students and so that there was less pontificating and more engagement and the journey that you give us of how you started and where you are now and how all of that influenced your research and both exposure and engagement to all these ideas, both with animals and the human condition. Uh, you're again summarizing that very nicely, you know, and, and that last chapter was just just reflecting, you know, kind of reflecting, but we're here just a blink, huh? We barely stepped foot on the planet and we're gone. And it was just trying to reflect and you know, it's very true, and I'm not the first to say this, of course, but it's the trials that really, the trials we that we really learn from. There, there's no question. How uh, the good times, they're great, and we enjoy them, and I certainly do. But 
And you, they're not the kind of things you'd raise your hand and say, I'll volunteer for five years of depression or I'll volunteer for cancer or I'll whatever, you know. <laughs> but you learn, at least I learned so much. It really, it really changed how I looked at things, those kind of things. And, and again, it's not unique to me. If you come to the planet, I think you experience those kind. You have trials, huh? And then what can you learn from those trials? Uh, I always, I sure saw them as huge learning experiences, you know? And so in a way, it's kind of bring it on, although you scare yourself to death to say that, actually. <laughs> you know, it's however it is. But anyway, the, the book was really tried to be written in a reflective sense and right through to that last that last chapter and i appreciate you bringing that up actually talking about some of that in this conversation to me that those are the meaningful things you know some of the stuff on food and and all that that's important no question and important in the sense that we're saying but for me it's what that's trying to tell us about this broader journey of life and uh, what the stories of different people, uh, like Anita's book, Dying to Be Me, you know, I mean, there's some hugely interesting messages in that book that just fit so, so nicely, in my view, anyway, with the messages that are in, in nourishment related to culture and dogma and how it can twist your mind beyond belief to the point where you end up sick and with cancer and nearly ready to die in her case. And, uh, you know, all the, all the different world traditions telling her how she should eat and what she should eat to get rid of cancer. And they're all conflicting with one another. It just kind of brings that whole, everything that in my mind, nourishment is about into a focus that, well, you know, in the end, and that's what she did. You've got to figure for yourself. You've got to figure it out, you know? And with that thought of figuring it out and everything that you shared with us today, are there any final thoughts that you would have with the listeners to help them on this journey of discovering their own path and way towards nourishing food traditions and ways of eating? Trusting in your own self, trying to figure out, I think it's so easy to get stuck on what I refer to in the book as the I am's. We identify with our, with our ethnicity, with our country that we're born and raised in, with our local city, with our job, with our, we identify with all those things. But I find that as a trap, you know, I mean, we need to do that, of course. I mean, that's a part of being, but I, I, I think it's a trap momentarily reflected in the, in the here and now, you know, if you're born another time, another place, all those I am's change. So it's trying to me to kind of transcend the I am to get to who I am. That may seem too nebulous. I don't know, but you know, it's it's trying to transcend all of those things that are labels and that we think we are to move beyond that to really who you are as part of the journey. I'm going to tell a story, and this may be longer than what you want. But there, years ago, I was coming back late at night from a trip somewhere to give some talks or do a workshop, and I was listening to NPR. And uh, they were talking about Edwin R. Murrow's program, This I Believe. And they were talking about why that was so important. After World War II, when people were so worried about communism and taking over the world, all that. And he put that program on the air to give people a chance to talk openly. And evidently, evidently it was a, just a hugely successful program. But I'll never forget that night driving in the dark, probably around midnight, and they were putting on little excerpts from people who had who had called into this program to talk about things. And this one guy called in and he said, look, I can tell you what I've been told that I am since I was a, and what I, what to believe, you know, since I was a tiny little kid from my church, from my parents, from my community, from my on and on and on. But he said, you know, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. I know what my culture has told me I am. I don't know who I am. And I thought, you know, that guy's got it. He's got it. Until you transcend all that business, you don't know who who I am, you know? From someone who follows the Buddhist contemplative path when it comes to some of my spiritual practices through largely secular meditation, it does. And I'm sure that it will resonate with some other folks who have walked 
similar kind of paths, whether it's through prayer or meditation. But yeah, there's there's something to be said for that as you step beyond some of those labels to something that is deeper and doesn't have an identity given to it, but is something that you can explore without name, just in the present and in the moment. Absolutely. That's absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. Well, I really, really enjoyed this conversation, Fred, and I love your book. I think that it's poignant and timely and definitely needed as some of our conversations about intellectual explorations and science have been pushed to one side, as well as that concept of a personal understanding of ourselves and the world is pushed to another. You've brought all those things together in such a great way. And I'm really glad to have had this conversation with you today to begin to share part of your journey and what led you to write this book and why all of this is so important to you. And I really look forward to being able to share this with others. And I really recommend that they pick up a copy of your book if they're wondering in any way how they can change their lives for the better by taking this first step with diet and nutrition and care for themselves as they care for the planet and their loved ones. So thank you for all of this today, Fred. Scott, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here with you, and thank you very much. And that was Fred Provenza. You can find his book, Nourishment, at chelseagreen.com. If you get a chance, go see Fred speak in person at an event or conference. You'll really benefit from getting to learn more and to spend some time with him. From our interactions in recording this interview, his warmth, love of the human experience, and deep curiosity reminded me of some of the best, most encouraging teachers I've ever had. I've also spent some time talking with some people I know who are not as into permaculture or food in the way that I am to get their thoughts on Fred's work. As I explained the very basics of the impact of flavor-feedback relationships, the role that our culture and mother have on our early eating habits and desires for certain tastes, and what a difference having alternatives available makes on our choices, in doing so within a few minutes, they're shaking their heads in agreement. They can see how this could influence the way we eat. It's something that makes sense. But what I like about where Fred goes with this in his book is that he dives much deeper than just making sense. He backs up his central arguments time and time again with examples, studies, and research. In many ways, his book is about the folk medicine that we know, meeting the medical science of today. Because of that, my own enjoyment in reading Fred's book, which goes, as I say, much deeper than what we were able to explore in our hour together, or I can even detail here in my end notes, Nourishment goes on my must-read list of 2018, and I highly recommend picking up a copy and reading it today. What do you think of what Fred shared with us in this conversation? Can you see the relationships between flavor feedback, culture, and alternative availability on our nutritional wisdom? Do you think it's possible for human beings to reclaim this connection with our food and the world? Leave a comment in the show notes. Call 717-827-6266. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or write the Permaculture Podcast. P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. The next episode from here will be the last interview of 2018. And I'll take a week off for the holidays and end with the annual retrospective. Until then, spend each day eating well for your body so that you can be healthy and take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.